2: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of this particular show, which is New Books in Big Ideas. Today we have Rick Sander and Stuart Taylor on the show, and we'll be talking about their book, Mismatch How Affirmative Action Hurts Students, It's Intended to Help, and Why Universities Won't Admit It. So, what are
1: the big ideas in this book? Well, Marshall, thanks for, thanks for having us on and arranging this. Uh, this My pleasure. Like a, a nice project. The, I think there are three big ideas in the book. Um, the first one is that we think that, um, controversial social policies often need to be evaluated in terms of data in terms of rather than in terms of, um, ideologies and and emotions. Affirmative action is a good example because it's been passionately debated for over 30 years. But, um, But most of the debate has been locked in a fairly narrow range where one side says justice requires that we compensate minorities for harms of the past and use preferences. And the other side says, no, we're now in an era of equality. We need to treat everybody the same. And our approach in the book uh, is to is to say, well, both those things are somewhat true. But let's see how this program actually works. Let's see what it actually does. So the book is largely about trying to uh, try to define how affirmative action and racial preferences operate in higher education today and what the effects are. The second big idea is that, to a very surprising degree, large racial preferences tend to hurt the recipients more than they help them. So, for example, uh, students who finish high school and and, want to become scientists um, generally will go to a, a good school. Generally, they'll go to the best school that will admit them, and they'll study their program. But in the case of minorities uh, who receive large preferences, that will end up putting them at a school where they're surrounded by people with stronger academic preparation because the preferences that universities use are extremely large, especially for African Americans and American Indians. So research shows that when students take a large preference, go to a competitive institution and and try to major in the sciences or engineering, they have extremely high attrition rates, uh, only about... 10 or 15% end up getting a degree in the field that they want to. Um, so that's just an example of how preferences can be counterproductive. The third big idea is that universities and higher education generally has, um, has sort of a culture of denial about the effects of affirmative action. Even though there's a mounting pile of evidence on these issues, it's been accumulating for almost 20 years, uh, universities tend to ignore it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to provide data. On what their actual outcomes are. And frequently, they, they foster an environment that demonizes anybody who does ask these questions. So, altogether, the, these things mean that we have a very healthy, very unhealthy environment about uh, affirmative action dialogue. And it makes it really hard to improve and reform those
0: programs.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Stuart, would you add anything to that?
0: Yes, Rick covered it very well, but I always like to add a little something. Um, first, uh, I'd like to emphasize. I think we would both emphasize that when we talk about affirmative action, uh, we don't. Uh, we're in favor of affirmative action if it's understood as it was originally defined uh, by Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, as meaning uh, especially active efforts to help uh, racial minorities and other disadvantaged people. At the time, the, you know, most racial minorities were disadvantaged. That's not so true now. Uh, uh, get get uh, a fair start in life. Uh, racial preferences are what affirmative action has come to mean, as the as that phrase is usually used. Racial preferences typically today operate by uh, taking fairly well off uh, members of minority groups and giving them uh it, it, you know uh, extra SAT points, essay grade point averages, giving them a preference in admissions in the universities over uh, white and Asian uh, uh, students who are often less well off economically and and so I want to emphasize that we're in favor of that old kind of affirmative action we're in favor and our book uh, explicitly advocates affirmative action for socioeconomically disadvantaged people. Mm -hmm. Number two, I I just mentioned the types of harms Rick started that we think uh, the current uh, uh, racial preference regime does to the recipients of the preferences, particularly black preferences, black recipients of preferences. Uh, Apart from uh, having trouble, uh, completing science courses, uh, for kids who wanted to be scientists and who would have succeeded in being scientists if they went to schools for which they were well prepared. Uh, their low grade, grades go down. Uh, graduation rates go down. There's a very high bar exam failure rate and also failure rates on medical boards, uh, for, uh, good, good black students and, uh, and other minority students who are Placed with uh, super qualified white students and who are not able to compete, and uh, also uh, there's a loss of intellectual self confidence that comes from being clustered at the bottom of the class and seeing that other people who look like you are clustered that way. It reinforces racial stereotypes of the worst kind. It reinforces the internalization of stereotypes of black intellectual inferiority by the supposed beneficiaries of uh, preferences and. Um, as Rick said, the culture of denial is very, very powerful, and I think it extends to and includes uh, the universities of America, the selective universities, uh, I think, systematically misleading uh, their uh, racial preference recruits uh, by uh, Mm -hmm. suggesting that they're going to do very well academically when the universities know that most of them will not do well academically. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you both for that summary. Uh, And before we go on to talk about the particulars of the book, I want to make two things completely clear to the listeners. I will characterize this and you can assent or uh, adjust this. So, your argument is not against affirmative action per se. That's A. And then B, it is not based on uh, fairness. That is, your criticisms of affirmative action are not based on
1: fairness or unfairness. That's right. I mean, yeah. we have views about the fairness. And, mm-hmm. and as Stuart mentioned, we do think it's unfair that the current preference regime is very skewed towards people who are quite affluent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and we think it's unfair when when uh, racial preferences don't distinguish between uh, African Americans and African immigrants or mixed race folks. Mm-hmm. If an Hispanic preference extends to somebody who's only one eighth Hispanic, I mean there there are lots of there are lots of and fairness issues, I think, involved in any kind of affirmative action that's, that's that looks primarily to race uh, as it currently operates. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. I guess what I meant to say was that your criticism of affirmative action as currently configured is, uh, to put it very bluntly, it doesn't do what we want it to. It is not effective.
1: Right. Yeah. It's empirically driven, and it's saying if you look at. If you look at the stated goals and you look at what's actually happening, there's a huge gap and we need to cross that gap. Mm-hmm. Stuart, do you want to add
2: anything to that?
0: Um, I, I agree with Rick. Um, I don't uh, I don't dismiss uh, the traditional fairness argument. You know, the traditional fairness argument from the anti-racial preference side is it's unfair to take uh, black students and jump them over white students who are equally or better qualified. Uh, we, we're not kind of... We're not doing that argument again. That argument's going on for a long time, and and people aren't changing their minds on it. That's why we're emphasizing the empirical evidence uh, that shows it doesn't work, uh, while um, sort of taking an agnostic position on the traditional fairness argument that that has dominated debate on this subject. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's
2: one of the real strengths of the book. Maybe we could talk a little bit – I'm a historian by training, and one of the most interesting things to me in the book – occurs right actually at the beginning, and that is the discovery of what you call the mismatch effect. Um, how was it discovered?
1: Well, there were, there were two stages. Um, I think, conceptually, um, um, some people who looked at the system back in the late 1960s, as soon as large racial preferences started, were concerned about what was going to happen. Um, Christopher Jenks, for example, is not, not often mentioned as a, as a critic of preferences in this context, but he wrote a book called *The Academic Revolution*. David Reisman, and um, I think it was 1969. It's a very influential book at the time, and uh, and it wasn't a major theme. But but when they talked about sort of current policies to increase diversity, they noted that mismatch could be a real issue. Um, Thomas Sowell, prominent black conservative critic, uh, laid out the whole problem of mismatch uh, in the early 1970s. So I think thoughtful observers who were willing to speak candidly, saw that this, this could potentially be a really serious problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was very little data, and, and universities tended to hide what data could be found. Um, so there was very little empirical research on this until the 1990s. Um, but during that time, I think, I think, again, more people who were concerned about this started gathering anecdotal information and became more convinced that there really was an issue. Um, so in the mid 1990s, a uh, few different people started doing research on this. Um, one of the best studies was by Roger Zellian, a psychologist at Dartmouth, and uh, he he hypothesized that there would be a mismatch problem, and he he convinced a number of uh, Ivy League institutions that they should they should cooperate on a study of how minorities did in in science fields and why there was this very high minority attrition problem. He didn't couch it as a mismatch study, which was probably why. The other institutions agreed to give him data, and he, he created a pretty good database, and uh, and found very strong evidence that the degree of attrition at these schools was very closely linked to essentially the admissions preference those students had received when they came in. So that that started the process, and uh, and I think if universities had and uh, been receptive to this and had sort of dealt with it in a forthright way, then I think within four or five years. We would have had very widespread documentation, a strong consensus that there were there were problems that needed to be addressed. But the leading works from official figures like Derek Bach and um, and William Bowen's book "The Shape of the River" simply ignored the evidence that Rogers Eliot had put together, and uh, and sort of presented misleading evidence that suggested that there weren't any problems in this area. So that's that's caused the development of this idea to be almost like real warfare where professors uh, who see this as a problem, struggle to get data, publish results, and then frequently deal with uh, an academy where it simply is considered politically incorrect to endorse that research. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, I know from my personal experience that universities are not very excited about releasing data on outcomes. They don't like it at all. Um, And Stuart, do you have anything to add to that?
0: Yeah, uh, one figure who I think deserves mention here in terms of early warnings about uh, mismatch problems is Justice Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court. Uh, Rick and I say in the book that we agree with him less often on many issues than we do with just about any other member of the court. However, we think that he he, was—he saw exactly what the problem was with mismatch, and he saw it pretty early in life. Uh, He first, in an interview with the New York Times, talked about how uh, African American students who he knew personally were harmed by, uh, by being, uh, placed out of their depth academically. Uh, he made a similar argument in his dissent in the 2003 University of Michigan Law School case, Grutter versus Bollinger. That's the only Supreme Court opinion in which the subject's ever been mentioned, I believe, uh, the whole question and mismatch. And, um, although I'm afraid a lot of, uh, Pro-affirmative action types who we hope to reach uh, may have a visceral reaction uh, because they don't like Clarence Thomas, but uh, on this subject, uh, he is well worth reading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I want to make something else clear before we move on, and uh, that is that when we talk about placing students and I'm characterizing what you're saying, so please correct me. When we talk about placing students who are less well-prepared among students who are more well-prepared, we are not disparaging those students who are less
1: well-prepared. No, we're trying to figure out um, how to maximize their education. Yeah. And and a related point, I guess there are two related points. One, one is that um, um, I think when some people first hear this idea, they, they think that we're suggesting that, uh, that uh, students receiving preferences just aren't, qualified for college and, uh, and that the effect of our suit questions would be to reduce college opportunities. And that's not true at all. Um, there are, there are hundreds of terrific colleges in America, but they, they cover a pretty wide range of spectrum in terms of the competitiveness of their student bodies and the rigor of their curriculum. And, uh, uh, and the focus of what we're suggesting is, is that you have to have a better match across that spectrum between students and the environments in which they're ending up in. Mm-hmm. Um, in California, where racial preferences were, were banned by, uh, by the voters in 1996, the effect of Prop 209 has pretty clearly been to substantially increase black and Hispanic enrollment at the University of California, the most uh, elite part of California public higher education. Um, it's led to reductions at the very top of that of that heap. Berkeley and UCLA have fewer blacks than they did before uh, before Prop two and I. But those students who were displaced by Prop two and I and went to oscillate schools because racial preferences weren't being used still ended up in very good schools, mostly UC schools, and ended up getting bachelor degrees and much, much higher rates. Mm-hmm. So the overall degree attainment rate here at the university has has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to point out, you say again and again in the book that these are perfectly intelligent people. They just don't quite have the preparation that other students would. And I know that I've, to wax autobiographical for a moment, this sort of happened in my own case. I went to a college in the Midwest, and then uh, it was perfect for me. It really was, because I wasn't uh, terribly well prepared uh, for going on, let's say, to graduate school. Um, And I've come to know a lot of people in my academic career, who were terribly well-prepared, who basically had college degrees before they got college degrees. And I think that, you know, they profited from being at one of these very elite institutions. I think I would have um, really suffered badly had I been, had I gone to one of these places. Um, but I was brought along and, you know, I did just fine. I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, but, you know, I make a contribution. And and I think it's an important important thing to point out that you're not saying anything about the um Native intelligence, whatever that might be of these people they just have they're not as well prepared, and you're saying that they are probably uh more apt to see succeed in their life goals if they are put among other students who have similar preparation
0: definitely we, we would say the same of of any. Student of any race who might be able to get into a university, by with a large preference, probably the alumni children tend to get preferences. Not maybe not as large. Athletes sometimes get very large preferences, and the children of wealthy mm-hmm. donors sometimes get very large preferences. If, if for example, a friend who was able to give a lot of money to a fancy college uh, to get his child, who was not you know who, who really who, whose board scores were say three hundred points below the median at that college. Ask me should I should, should I push for this? I would I would advise no, for the same reason. Either your child is better off going to a place uh, where uh, he or she is more or less uh, competitive with classmates, um, no matter what the race of the child. It's just that the racial preference system we have in this country today systematically puts uh, black uh, kids and to some extent Hispanic kids uh, in classes with others who have. Uh, far better entering preparation, and that's the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Rick, yeah. you were going to say? Yeah, I was just Ann Marshall that that that. Um, it's really not a question of intelligence at all. It's it's a question of mm-hmm. economic preparation, and a good example is um, is Roland Fryer, who is probably the leading African American economist in the nation today. He, he teaches at Harvard now, um, and he was profiled in the New York Times Magazine about ten years ago because he had a he had sort of a uh, the exact kind of classic disadvantaged story of, of growing up in a highly dysfunctional family, um, uh, frequenting public housing, living in very difficult conditions, had a pretty poor K-12 education. Uh, but he was a brilliant guy. And he went to a, a fairly low-tier school, uh, discovered economics, fell in love with it, and started performing brilliantly. So by the time he had finished college, he was he was well prepared to so you go to graduate school anywhere. He, he ended up becoming a junior fellow at Harvard, mm-hmm. which is kind of, kind of like Harvard's super doctoral program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, and, and I, th- I think he would be the first to agree that, that that was a really good trajectory for him, that had he gone into uh, a really demanding environment as a college freshman, who might easily have been overwhelmed and felt, felt that he couldn't compete in economics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the evidence. There are a number of, as you say, we'll talk about this in a moment, that the universities are very reticent to give uh, data on outcomes, but there've been a number of natural experiments uh, that have uh, shed a certain amount of light on mismatch. Can um, you talk a little bit about those? Do you want to start Rick and then we can go to Stuart?
1: Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the best natural experiment is the one of, and that's happened in California since Prop 209 passed in 1996 um, because there you can look at what happened immediately before and immediately after racial conflict Um and uh, a, a group of University of California professors uh, trying to get very detailed data from the university back in 2007 to study this issue and, and uh, even though Several of us had fairly prominent positions within the UC hierarchy. Um, we were stonewalled for a year. And when the university eventually did give us data, they, they heavily censored it. Uh, they, they, for example, combined Blacks and Hispanics in a single category. They would only give us data for students grouped into three-year cohorts. Um, they took out a lot of information that would have been useful and would have, would have made our research better. Still. What they gave us was probably the best data that any university has given any professors useful for studying mismatch that, that was publicly available in the whole history of this of this effort. Uh, and that, that data has now produced half a dozen research papers that are coming out in peer-reviewed journals. Um, pretty clearly, that, that data has shown, I think, three general things. One is that, as I mentioned before, um, minority enrollments ended up going up in the UC as a whole, rather than down. Partly because the University of California, left without the tool of racial preferences, started doing outreach um, into disadvantaged communities in a way that it never had before. It spent tens of millions of dollars creating partnerships with inner-city high schools, trying to get people to take the sort of courses they needed to prepare for the university, um, helping provide tutoring, and so on. So that led to a dramatic increase in applications from the folks that we really want to reach, which is uh, low to moderate income households, whether they be black, Hispanic, white, or Asian. Uh, and and in time, that produced a substantial increase in minority enrollment at the university. Second big effect was that outcomes improved dramatically. So before Prop 2 and 9, um, blacks at UCLA had a four year graduation rate that hovered in the mid teens, around 15, 16, 17 percent. Um, after 2-9, that went up into the 30-40% to 40% range very quickly, and now it's about 40%. So the overall effect, uh, system-wide, was for much better outcomes. You not only had more minority students, but those students were getting degrees in a higher rate. They were having much better success persisting in science. They were having higher GPAs. So almost all the outcome academic outcomes were sharply improved. And the third effect, which you can see is linked to, to the first two, is that Black and Hispanic students started accepting offers from the university at a higher rate than they had before. So, a lot of the a lot of the conventional story told about affirmative action is that it's necessary to help make students feel that there's a welcoming environment. That black students would be intimidated by alien institutions and would be reluctant to come unless they they see visible evidence that the university is aware of race and is mm-hmm. deliberately trying to foster uh, uh, a prefer preferential environment for racial minorities. And we found just the opposite, that, uh, that that black and Hispanic students accepted offers from the university at all UC campuses at substantially higher rates after Prop 2 and 9 than before, which suggested that they, they really wanted to go to a school where they could feel that they had gotten in on the merits, where they were not going to be stereotyped as the recipients of racial preferences, and where their degrees would be free of any stigma of having not been earned the same way that everyone else earned their degrees. Mm-hmm. So together, those are, those are, you know, a pretty convincing case. I think that the mismatch is real and that we can, uh, we can do much better.
0: Mm-hmm. Stuart? Um, yes. And uh, just uh, to telescope a little bit other evidence, there've been at least four major studies uh, of undergraduate education that have shown uh, by and large that uh, African-American students in particular, uh, uh, who, who are put over their heads academically uh, through racial preferences tend to flee the tough courses. A lot, of, a, a large percentage come in wanting to be scientists, engineers, pre-med, uh, or scholars. And these studies, uh, which have not been rebutted at all, uh, tend to show that they can't hack it in the really tough courses, they tend to go to easier courses and they don't get to pursue, uh, pursue their career ambitions, those who had wanted to be scientists or scholars, professors. Uh, the first, uh, Rick mentioned the 1996 study by Rogers Elliott at Dartmouth. Similar results were reached by Fred Smith and John McCardle in a two thousand four study, in a in two thousand three book by Stephen Cole and Eleanor Barber called Increasing uh, Increasing Faculty Diversity, which is commissioned by the Ivy League presidents and and funded by pro affirmative action uh, results, but the I'm sorry, pro racial preference uh group, uh, the Mellon Foundation, but Cole and Barber's conclusions were that racial preferences were harming these students and under undermining their intellectual self-confidence. Peter Arcidiacano at uh, Duke University has, uh, and colleagues have done a similar study. And then finally, uh, Rick Sander, my co-author's own studies of law school mismatch, uh, have, uh, have, uh, have taken a further step because of the bar exam. Stands as a test of what people learned. Most when you graduate from undergraduate school, there is really isn't any universal test of what you learned. Mm-hmm. There is something close to that in the form of the bar exam. And Rick's own work shows uh, astonishingly high failure rates on the bar exams, even by African American students, as compared with white or Asian students who entered law school with the same. Academic mm-hmm. records, same LSAT scores, same grades, and yet there's still this huge differential in the bar exam flunk rate. And I think Rick shows compellingly that the reason is that the black students are most of them in law schools where they cannot do well. Uh, they get discouraged. They don't learn as much as they would in a somewhat less selective law school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Just Marshall, if I can just follow Please. on Stewart's last point. Um, uh, uh, that, that, that finding about law schools has, has recently been confirmed by an economist named Doug Williams, whose research is, has, was accepted last month by one of the leading empirical journals in the field. It's the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies. What's really important about Doug's work is that he examined uh, and compared blacks with other blacks and used a database that, uh, where he was able to estimate the size of preference that individual students had received. And he compared blacks who received hard preferences with blacks who had been accepted to uh, more elite schools but had chosen for, say, family reasons or financial reasons to go to a somewhat less elite school. So what's great about that research is that that some of my critics had said, well, you know, we can never really know if what's driving the difference between blacks and whites is mismatch or something else that's correlated with race. William's work shows that even when you compare blacks with other blacks at different levels of mismatch, you get the exact same results Mm -hmm. Um, and, and dramatic dramatically higher success rates for blacks who went to schools where they were somewhat better. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. There's a moment in the book where you describe how you explain this particular effect. That is the discouragement, which especially racial minorities feel and, you give a, a kind of hypothetical case of you go into a class and you don't do very well. Can you go through that? Do you remember which one I'm talking
1: about? Yeah, Stuart, you want to take that? Sure.
0: Yeah, uh, the example that uh, that we use uh, is a high school math class. Let's say you're a junior in high school. Let's say you're a pretty good math student. Let's say your SATs were uh, 650 or 700. Uh, then suddenly you find yourself put in the special math class from hell where everyone else in the class except (laughs) you and your best friend you and your best friend are pretty good math students the other 18 students in the class are math whizzes math geniuses 800 SATs five on the advanced placement test are headed that way they're just a lot better than you are um in, in preparation and perhaps in terms of gifts but uh... let's stick with preparation for the moment uh... So they're going to be able to go much faster than you are. The teacher might take two weeks to go through a very tough unit of calculus, and they get it. But you need a month to get through that tough unit of calculus and really get it. The teacher is moving at a pace designed for the median student in the class and the majority in the class. So after two weeks on unit X of calculus, he's on to unit Y of calculus. But you and your best friend are lost because you're not ready to move on, and you'll get progressively more lost as, as the year passes. Now imagine that you and your best friend who are sitting in this class uh, are, happen to be black, and everyone else in the class happens to be Asian and white, and you get a little bit of the sense of how it might feel uh, in most selected universities in America. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a very telegraphic way to put it. I think, it's a, a, vis- I think a lot of people have experienced such things. I mean, I, in fact, Rick did yeah. himself. Why don't you tell about that, Rick? In your language problem.
1: When I was at Harvard, I, uh, I, I, I had a really good junior year in it and made the mistake of thinking I was invulnerable. So uh, <laughs> you are
2: excused. You are
1: only nineteen. <laughs> that's right. Even though I'd I always been terrible in foreign languages, I thought, uh, well, you know, let me give it another shot. So I signed up for a German class at Harvard. And uh, the average Harvard student is very fast with foreign languages and. I found within three weeks that I was completely lost and kept thinking that, well, if I work harder and buckle down and and do extra hours, I'll catch up. But I kept falling further and further behind. So it was a, it's kind of a frightening experience. And, and that was, that was for someone who, you know, already had a lot of intellectual self-confidence and, and knew that I was going to graduate anyway. So the stakes weren't that high for me. And, you can only imagine how terrifying that would be for someone who didn't have those advantages. Yeah, no, and especially if you look around the room
2: and you see a lot of people that look like you and they aren't doing well either. Yeah, That, that would be uh, very disturbing, I think. Um, yeah, very, very disturbing. Now, you talk in the book about why uh, academics can't be honest about this, even though I suspect that they know it. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that is, why they're so hard to teach in this way?
1: Well, You know there are many different um, motives for different sectors of the economy um, uh, for for African American faculty or leaders of, uh, of say minority services on campus the view is that if if you if you attack if you attack preferences you sort of directly undermine their authority on campus their role on campus because a lot of their their purpose a lot of their um, influence on campuses arises from the fact that there, there are very large minority pref- uh, preferences and therefore large presences on campus. So they see preferences as kind of a direct threat and therefore um, feel a loyalty uh, to the programs and to one another that, that I think is largely political. Um, there are other faculty who uh, helped start racial preference programs uh, or who were actively involved with them at some time in their careers, and they feel very sort of attached to these, and feel this is one of the most important accomplishments that they had. That you know many academics would like to see more social justice in America. And they feel that well at least we bring some social justice here on campus. So they also feel intensely protective of these programs because they're so identified with them, and they see them as kind of a bulwark against uh, social conservatism. Mm-hmm. Then you have administrators who um, who. I think, very generally see the problems, but feel that um, anything they would say would be instantly seized upon by uh, by others on campus as evidence that they were unfit to rule Um, that, uh, you know, there have been a series of sort of spectacular forced admissions of university administrators who said politically incorrect things. So it's almost part of the, you know, the, the rule one playbook of being a campus administrator is make sure you are on the right side of the diversity camp uh climate in your school be proactive in this area never appear to be retrenching or to be skeptical about the benefits of diversity so for them it's a, it's a complete no-brainer um I, i'm i'm living through all this right now because uh i talk in the book about or stewart i have a chapter in the book that talks about how ucla has uh has uh, increasingly turned to uh, explicit racial preferences again. They're kind of backing away from the race neutrality required by Prop 209. And it's pretty clear that they're breaking the law. Um, so when the book came out, that uh, ignited a furor uh, on campus. And uh, and sort of these these stories have played out in all the usual ways. Um, our, our position was, was really strengthened because... Um, Several years ago, a few of us questioned whether new admissions programs at UCLA were, in fact, uh, engaging in racial discrimination. And the university commissioned a distinguished sociologist to do an independent study. And his report came out a few months ago. and found that, in fact, there were large numbers of, of black admissions on campus that could not be explained by controlling for any of the factors that the university said it used in admissions. So we had this essential, essentially official study completely backing us up. And despite that, there has been uh, an incredible effort by activists on campus, among both faculty and students, and administrators, to simply denounce the claim that there's anything discriminatory going on, and to completely ignore the evidence, even by their own expert. Um, and uh, an and awful lot of faculty who, uh, who sort of uh, will you know, shake my hand if they run into me in the hallway... Um, and and say you know keep up the good work. Just feel that they cannot say anything public about this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's it's really easy for the those who are denying reality to uh, send a petition to the president with hundreds of signatures um, demanding that uh, no changes be made in the missions. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get a petition saying the opposite. Um, so it's a it's a really It's a really difficult environment in which to uh, talk about this stuff, honestly. Mm -hmm. Let me turn to Stuart to ask
2: a follow-up question. You guys also point out that uh, it's difficult for uh, the media and politicians to um, uh, accept or speak about these issues. Uh, Stuart, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes, um, and I think the media uh, have traditionally... Portrayed affirmative action slash racial preferences as a good thing, and that uh, you know that you're virtuous if you support them, and that you're somewhat suspect if you don't support them, and in part for that reason, and uh, the media has systematically. I would say, emphasized every positive aspect of this story and buried every negative aspect of this story they can. It comes right down to the terminology, which we talked about before. The media almost never use the phrase racial preferences. Uh, and, and of course, Fox News might. I'm talking about most of the mainstream media. Uh, they use the phrase affirmative action. And that's a, it's it's a ambiguous and somewhat misleading phrase because a lot of people think that when you say affirmative action you're talking about uh benefits for the disadvantaged uh, race neutral benefits of the disadvantaged or you're talking about um uh, uh you know what uh, presidents kenny and johnson meant which was trying really really hard uh, to open up opportunities to members of all races uh, when in fact the media know perfectly well that, that what they, when they say affirmative action, they're talking about racial preferences, but their readers don't all know that. Politicians, I think, are terrified uh, of this uh, issue. Uh, no national, even though most Republicans, at least, and a lot of Democrats I know, have severe doubts about the wisdom of racial preference policies. No national politician has made a strong attack on this policy since at least nineteen ninety six when california adopted uh, a ban on racial preferences they're terrified of it i've talked to a prominent member of the house leadership uh... republican house leadership and i've asked asked why 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 are you all so silent about this and the basic answer was they know they'll be betrayed as as uh... uh... racially insensitive at best or racist at, at worst uh... by uh... the media by academia and uh... and it's just not worth it uh, to them to take the issue on. I'd just add a footnote on, although, although the, the dishonesty and the secrecy I deplore that the universities engage in, I, I'm sympathetic to them in at least in two ways. One, they're terrified that without racial preferences, the numbers, the percentages of African Americans and Hispanic Americans at the selective campuses would plunge drastically, which is something... Uh, I wouldn't want to see, and I, and I can see why they're afraid of it. We can talk about why they think that would happen. Two, the system is such that if I were a university president, I would feel trapped. I would f- I would not feel that saying, hey, why don't we experiment with reducing greatly the size of racial preferences or eliminating them on this campus and see what happens? Because what would happen is that the number of uh, African-Americans on my campus would go Now, not just a little bit, not just by half, it would go down to close to zero because all the other campuses would still be using racial preferences. And therefore, the people who would be accepted by my race-blind university would also be getting accepted by uh, more prestigious places and would tend to go there. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. So then... Uh, academics are not particularly cooperating, and the media is not cooperating, nor are politicians. And you talk a little bit about the Supreme Court, and they aren't exactly making things easier for you either.
0: We think um, we think the Supreme Court may be the only solution to this within the next hundred years or so. Uh, I personally, and, and I think we may agree, don't don't. You know, like, like the Supreme Court on a lot of things to defer to the democratic process. And the arguments made, well, why shouldn't they defer to the democratic process here and let the experts run things? And and there's some force to that argument. But the reason I find it unconvincing in this context is uh for the reasons we discussed and others, uh there's there's no no reform in sight. There's no constituency for reform in sight. There's a lot of people who doubt this system, but all the people who have power over how the system works, uh, are either invested in it or are afraid to touch it, uh, and the politicians in the latter case. So, if you want to see less harm done to the supposed beneficiaries of affirmative action, uh, the Supreme Court is your best is your best hope. Uh, and so, we hope Rick and I, I think, hope that the court in the currently pending case involving the University of Texas will. Uh, we don't urge the court to ban the use of race and admissions, but we do urge the court to make some important reforms. Mm-hmm.
1: Rick? Yeah, the you know, um, the last 70 years the Supreme Court has um, essentially said that any kind of racial classification requires strict scrutiny. And generally the reason for putting it in that special suspect category is that, uh, is that they feel that uh, race is uh, uh, you know first of all, the Constitution prohibits differential treatment based on race, and secondly that uh, it's frequently easy for the political process to entrench racial favoritism um, and most of the cases where the where the court has taken that on have been say from the old South where you had Jim Crow and and stuff like that but there have also been cases like Croson where the city of Richmond had a black majority in the city council and started dispensing favors based on race to black contractors. Um, So we think we think affirmative action really fits in the purview of what the court um, needs to, needs to be very restrictive about it needs to be very skeptical of because it's clear that the political process hasn't worked well in trying to evaluate what's happening with the programs, trying to make available information, trying to have transparency on all those counts it's really been a, a fairly dysfunctional system. That's when we usually expect the court to step in. Mm-hmm. Let, me, uh, let me give you one more example, a concrete example of the, of the media problem. Um, the, uh, the New York Times has had uh, a few stories over the years about the problem of uh, minorities becoming scientists. And, uh, you know, as, as you know from our conversation in our book, we think that's a big problem too. Uh, clearly mismatch is, is one of the central reasons for low minority achievement in science, and one of the reasons why blacks, for example, are very underrepresented among scientists and engineers. The New York Times uh, in covering this has has never never even raised mismatch as a as a as a possibility that can affect minorities. They talked about about a general issue of students going to schools where they're less well prepared. Uh, but they've mostly have focused on whether there's discrimination somewhere, um, and they highlighted last year a study that uh, of National Science Foundation funding that found that uh, black applicants for NSF funding were getting getting grants at a lower rate than white applicants, and there was always a lot of circumstantial evidence that that, that was simply because um, there were differences in the quality of applications from from uh, different groups. But they they came back, and in in December, December of 2012, they ran another story on this, um, pointed out that some of the original research on the NSF discrimination uh, was falling apart and cast down on the discrimination story, but still ignored the mismatch issue. This was despite the fact that our book, which had come out two months before, specifically criticized the New York Times for not talking about mismatch. Hmm. I have reporter friends at... at uh, at elite journals and newspapers that have said, you know, I really would like to write about this, but I get, I get so much garbage every time I take on this issue that it, it just isn't worth, worth it for me professionally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well,
2: so at the end of the book, you make some proposals about what might be done. Um, Stuart, why don't you begin talking about those? And then we will turn the, uh, turn our attention to Rick.
0: Yeah, we have two major proposals, and then a kind of uh, uh, another one that kind of complements them. The first is total transparency uh, in university racial admissions programs, in the sense that the universities should make uh, available to applicants in the first instance, but also to the general public. Uh, Uh, All the information, all the data that show how their admissions policies work, actually, what the usual... Uh, what the usual get, what the gaps are between various racial groups, for example, uh, in terms of admissions criteria, uh, in terms of newly admitted students, and how well people do academically, uh, either from within, you know, and those could be correlated mainly with their entering credentials. If somebody has an SAT, you know, people have SAT scores of ABC and, uh, and, uh, high school, um, GPAs of whatever. Uh, how how are those people doing at Princeton or at Harvard or at Georgetown or at GW so that people who are being accepted with large preferences can get some idea whether they really are likely to do well, as they're generally told, or as the data would show, uh, not so likely to do well? Um and so, you know, this would be healthy both for, as a consumer protection uh, measure for the for the recipients of preferences, but also as a public policy measure, so that the people who are uh, ultimately responsible for what our po- public policies are—politicians and uh, and voters, as well as university uh, officials—would um, have all the available data on how all the all the information that's being hidden should be made public. Uh, the second major. The uh, proposal we have uh, is to subordinate racial identity to socioeconomic disadvantage in terms of who is targeted by affirmative action uh, or call them preference programs. In particular, we would, uh, we would say that no university should be able to give preferences based on race to affluent kids uh... that are larger than the preferences it's given based giving based on socioeconomic factors to less affluent kids uh, one way it would work is it would uh... it would uh... disallow what's now universal which is accepting the children of black doctors and lawyers mm-hmm. ahead of the children of white cab drivers and seamstresses who have higher grades and test scores mm-hmm. uh, part of that uh... that the third and and uh less less important but related uh, thing would be to ban race-based scholarships uh, as opposed to race-based admissions criteria. Race-based scholarships are used more or less uh, by universities who engage in bidding wars to try and get you know to try and get the best qualified uh, racial minority students uh, to come to their school and they really don't increase at all uh, the total number of uh, of racial minorities in the universities they, they simply Channel money towards these bidding wars that would be better invested in promising students who need the money. Mm-hmm. Rick,
1: well, uh, yeah, I think Stewart has summed it up quite well. The you know the reason why transparency is our central recommendation is that that would set up a whole virtuous cycle of, of other developments. We now have kind of a negative cycle that's fueled by secrecy, um, but with transparency, any school that that has to make public Um, uh, how students who receive preferences end up doing is going to immediately realize that they have to do one of two things. They either have to provide better academic support for the students they're admitting or they have to retool their admissions programs. And either of those things would would be constructive. Um, Students, clearly, when they are comparing offers of admission, need something better than the U.S. News and World Report (laughs) to to figure out You know, what are the merits? What are their prospects of these different schools? So transparency creates all sorts of accountability that would would be incredibly healthy for the system. And once there's a certain amount of accountability, then debate has to come out in the open. You know, we've had a a standing offer for six months to to post a $10,000 prize for any critic of Mismatch who will have an open debate with us in front of empiricists and let the empiricists judge... Which side has the better argument? And no one has taken us up. Um, when, whenever I do have debates with uh, with critics, they usually start out... Uh, they're generally non empiricists and they'll start out saying, well, I'm going to cite some of the evidence, but I'm not prepared to defend it because I'm not an empiricist. It sounds incredible, but that's happened to me at, at sort of the two largest debates I've been in in recent months. So you, you now have a situation where the... Um, uh, sort of the establishment affirmative action position is to simply simply not engage with the with the issue. If there's transparency, then they'll have to engage.
2: Mm-hmm. Is there any, and either of you can answer this, are there any institutions that are moving toward transparency in this way? It would seem to me, let me just say uh, my, my own thought on the issue, it would seem to me that uh, uh, sort of less prestigious schools who are doing very well have a lot of uh, <laughs> they would they would it would serve them very well to release all this data i can see how the prestigious schools wouldn't want to do it
1: well the problem with that is the is the cascade effect so if um, school uses preferences then they force the second-tier school to to make a choice either that school can use even larger preferences or they can um, or they can have very very minority scheme and in the current environment it's it's, it's just politically impossible for a school to say to make that second choice Mm -hmm. so the cascade as we show in chapter two of the book tends to produce substantially larger preferences as you move from tier one down to say tier five schools say a a 200th ranked school would be like a tier five school Mm -hmm. um so there aren't that many counterexamples of schools that can can put forth that information one sort of school that can are are the historically black schools And, and they have put put out a lot of information and there have been a lot of studies showing that that uh Blacks who go to those historically black schools uh, tend to have very good outcomes, um, but you know that that has not been seized upon by by observers or reporters or politicians as as something about mismatch. It's seen as something about the environment of those schools. Mm-hmm. So there, there's been a, a surprising lack of, of
0: what you're suggesting. Yeah, Stuart. Whenever the data do come to light, and they come to light uh, here and there. Um, almost always over the resistance of the universities we try and keep in secret, they're, they're really quite striking. and In the current pending lawsuit, for example, against the University of Texas admission system, uh, we brought to light in a friend of the court brief we filed uh, data showing that um, for the relevant group of applicants, those admitted outside the so-called top 10% system, the mean SAT score on a scale of 2,400 of Asians was 467 points above the mean black score. The mean white score is 390 points above the mean uh, white score. Uh, these are gigantic mm-hmm. uh, gaps, and they're typical of what goes on around the country from all the evidence we've seen. So, and, and one thing we should emphasize is if the gaps were small, you know, if it were, say, 50 points on average or maybe even 100 points on average – then the mismatch problem wouldn't be such a big problem because no, but nobody's claiming that you know that every SAT point is is a huge difference uh, between people who have a little bit fewer or few, a few, few more. It's when you have great big gaps like these that the mismatch problem uh, presents itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and we don't even really know um, uh, whether small preferences are, are a net harm or a net benefit. The, the data that's available isn't Isn't granulated enough to let us measure that? Mm -hmm. It's possible that uh, that if you have a small preference, uh, that you sort of do better because you respond to the challenge and Mm -hmm. you have talented peers who can mentor you and things like that. Uh, That that's something that there ought to be research on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to do that, we have to have better data.
2: Mm -hmm. Let me ask this as a final question. And uh, uh, Rick, you've already sort of touched on it, but let me ask again: How has your book been received
1: in various quarters? We've generally been pretty happy. It's uh, it, it's it's gotten a lot of good reviews. Um, uh, there are good Amazon ratings. Uh, there's been a fair amount of coverage. Um, and and I think that uh, I think there are signs, in a way that that I didn't see at all when I started working on this field seven years ago, that uh, some liberal establishment groups are really trying to engage with this. So there have been several organizations that have approached me that uh, that I don't think would have talked about mismatch five or six years ago that want to set, set up a dialogue. Um, I'm giving a talk to a group called the Philanthropy Roundtable um, later this year that, that that has many members that are uh, sort of invested in providing grants to education. And they want to know sort of if, if mismatch is true, how should that modify their their kind of educational mm-hmm. strategies. So much like that, are, I think, are really encouraging. Mm-hmm. On the discouraging side is that most of the standard liberal outlets, uh, like the New York Times and uh, the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker, have pretty much ignored the book. Uh, when I don't think they would ignore a book that, that uh, had a similar, uh, similar level of kind of public policy reach and empirical detail, but came out and argued that affirmative action was a good thing. I mean if you compare the reception of the New York Times to our book with what it accorded the shape of the river when that came out in nineteen ninety eight it's uh it's like night and day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so th- th- there's still a a tendency by a lot of a lot of the standard organs to um uh, just you know pretend that this issue isn't there Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Stuart. Yeah, I agree, and I emphasize, you know, it's, I mean, I think it's kind of shocking, frankly, that a book uh, that's been treated as important by a lot of important people, um, including those who, who wrote blurbs for us, uh, including some fairly liberal people, has been totally ignored by the New York Times. It would be one thing if they wrote a review that said, well, here's why this book is unconvincing, but they haven't taken that. The people who have attacked our logic... Uh, have been longtime critics of Rick's by and large, and then some other people they apparently recruited who wrote in front of the court briefs in the Supreme Court, responding to our brief, and and are starting to write in in reviews, uh, very um, complicated attacks on the statistical methodology underlying some of the conclusions, mainly the ones uh, from Rick's earlier work on law schools, uh, while uh, while presenting these critiques as though they kind of were. Uh, we're discrediting our entire work. They really are aimed exclusively, almost exclusively, at Rick's law school work. They're recycled versions of critiques that Rick responded to compellingly, I thought, several years ago. And they um, they they continue to ignore all the other studies we've mentioned uh, that show problems with mismatch that nobody has ever uh, even attempted to refute. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, why don't we just talk a moment about sort of the general. Um, critique and and, and respond to a couple of Please, please go ahead. Um, I think, you know, when when my original piece came out on Law School Mismatch, there was actually, you know, there was actually an organized effort to refute it. There was a a meeting at the American Association of Law Schools uh, convened for people who were concerned about the article and planning how to respond to it. And there were about 20 critiques that were published within within about a year and a half of of the publication of my piece. Um, And no, no, pub- okay, no published article that supported it. So the critics were pretty happy because they thought that they had sort of shown that, that the establishment was firmly rejecting this conclusion, including a lot of distinguished empiricists. Um, and then an effort started to look more closely at some of the findings of those, and uh, 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 we, we, challenged, we challenged one prominent critic to sort of show the numbers behind her results, and it turned out that the results didn't really exist. And the journal that published the critique had to had to withdraw it and apologize. And uh, and a, a new article running the same numbers showed exactly the effects that mismatch predicted. Then there was the Williams piece that I mentioned has just been accepted, which goes through each of the critics and essentially um, um, shows that if you if you make proper adjustments, reasonable adjustments for biases in the data, if you do the tests. Using all the information available instead of a subset of the information, then the results are very strongly supported and mismatch. So, one of those early critiques have now been discredited. Therefore, an awful lot of the um, a lot of the current critiques basically draw on that two thousand five, two thousand six literature. Hang on a second. Let me hear it. And uh, and and instead of sort of advancing a particular argument, they say. Uh, well, there's a clear consensus rejecting rejecting the mismatch arguments. In other words, the the current literature almost entirely relies on the earlier consensus as evidence against mismatch, instead of talking about the evidence at all. Uh, and uh, and that that's, that actually seems to be very encouraging because it, it means that these guys have run out of ideas. Mm-hmm. They're sort of hoping that people will not look too closely and will just say, "Well, you know." If you just count the number of critiques, then that seems like uh, there's room for doubt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the I'd, I'd say the the main um, um, current critique by some serious empiricists is that, uh, and this was made in the Supreme Court briefs that they filed, was that policymakers should not act on mismatch until there are. Randomized experiments showing that mismatch exists. In other words, that um, that the, the quality of evidence behind mismatch is not comparable to the quality of evidence we have for, say, testing a new medicine or um, or uh, or a scientific theory. You know, we we haven't done controlled experiments, and that's that's perfectly true. Um, but the response to that is threefold. One is that if the only social science out there was based on controlled experiments, then social sciences would have very little to do because there aren't that many controlled experiments involving humans. In fact, there are a lot of a lot of federal regulations saying that you can't experiment with humans in, in many ways. So, controlled experiments is an awfully high bar to set. The second is that we do have some pretty good quasi-experimental evidence, like we talked about before with Prop Two and Nine, and with this evidence on on blacks who choose to go to different tiers of law schools uh, for different reasons and looking at their academic results. So the, the the kind of evidence we have is actually dramatically stronger than the sorts of evidence that supporters of affirmative action think is fine when, they, when they're talking about other issues. Um, and the third is that if universities would sort of at least admit that this was a potential problem and would try to set up controlled experiments we'd be we'd be totally for that mm-hmm. we'd be leading we are leading the charge for it mm-hmm. so so we think the the, the critiques are, are really kind of hollow and and uh uh it's a sign of weakness but it's also disappointing that that um uh, that they're even
0: you know given credence by by any kind of mainstream outlet mm-hmm. footnote to that by and large the same people who who uh, like to criticize some of uh, of our work, Rick's work in particular, as based on insufficient data, are uh, are, are frantically uh, make, doing everything they can to make sure no data come out yeah. that might uh, that might uh, prove or disprove uh, some of these points. So in particular, a lawsuit Rick's involved in against the California Bar which is trying to conceal the data that would, uh, that would enable a much more definitive test, uh, one way or another, of the correctness of, uh, of Rick's earlier conclusions and, and, and the people attacking them. The people attacking them are happy to complain that his data aren't sufficient to prove his point, but also uh, very eager to make sure he doesn't get any more data.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, so actually sort of led the charge to stop California Bar from releasing the data. There was a point This this database basically has data from um, something like 200,000 people who have taken the California bar over the last 30 years. And it's the kind of granulated data I mentioned before that would let us see whether small preferences have positive or negative effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it would also be a much more dramatic sort of way of looking at what are the effects of mismatch in particular law schools. And uh, a whole series of prominent critics basically filed specious arguments saying that the data shouldn't be released. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just advancing ridiculous arguments for the purpose of saying that there were serious scholars who thought the data shouldn't come out. Mm-hmm. And that actually gave the bar a pause. And, and, uh, and they were eventually persuaded to, to turn us down and, and defend a lawsuit on, on whether the data should be disclosed. Currently, um, we've won, we've won that suit at the California appellate court level, and it's on appeal to the California Supreme court. Um, it's uh, it's hard for institutions to defend this sort of complete lack of transparency. So we're optimistic we're going to win that. We, we've actually gotten a lot of um, a lot of the establishment media to write a uh, sign a brief that's on our side. Mm-hmm. So that, things like that, I think, are ultimately very encouraging and, and tend to discredit the critics.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, Rick Sander and Stuart Taylor, I want to thank you for being on the New Books Network today. We were talking about Mismatch, How Affirmative Action hurts Students, It's Intended to Help, and Why Universities Won't Admit It. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network and the host of New Books and Big Ideas. I hope everybody has a great week. You
0: too, Marshall. Thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye. Marshall, bye-bye.